0: We're going to be looking at faithfulness, and really we're going to be looking at faithfulness versus unfaithfulness, and hopefully looking at that distinction. Um, And we're going to start in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. And there are so many important themes that are born in Genesis, and they just echo out throughout the rest of Scripture uh, it's, it's like a garden. And in fact, we read of many gardens in Genesis, and there are certain seeds that are planted and they sprout throughout the Bible. And sometimes they're weeds, and those weeds have to be taken care of. But we see those weeds popping up because humans have a, a difficult time learning uh, the lessons that God has intended for us. Um, and all these themes go out throughout Scripture that start in Genesis, and then so many of them seem to get resolved through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is, I just find fascinating, that, that they sort of get funneled down, and then Christ solves them all. He demonstrates the way to, way to, the way to think, the way to behave, the way to treat others. Uh, it's just, it's fantastic. And so Genesis is so rich, Uh, with so many lessons and tonight we're going to be looking at faithfulness and when we think about faithfulness we might we might think about you know sort of silly things sometimes some people are very faithful to their up here in Canada their hockey team Um, in Guyana maybe you're very faithful to your cricket team and some people are, are extreme um they wouldn't dare put on a jersey from another team, a rival team. That would be like being unfaithful. Um, you know, I once wore uh, a Boston Bruins shirt. And, and people, how could you wear that? That's not your team. That's, and it's like it was only $5 at the store. That's why I'm wearing it. Uh, I'm not that faithful to a hockey team. But then we can take something that's sort of silly, like a team and we can make it much more serious. Uh, Faithfulness to our spouse. And we take that vow that we are going to be faithful, that we are going to be true to that person, that that person will be um, the only one, that we will be united to them. And then we can take that even to a more serious level, and we are called to be faithful to our God and to not turn aside to any other god. And marriage is a beautiful example that God gives us. In fact, um, with Hosea, where he's told to go out and marry a harlot. And I believe that Hosea fell in love with this woman and got a deep understanding of what it was like for God every time Israel was unfaithful. Hosea felt that, and he understood it. Um, and so we're, we're to be true to our Heavenly Father, to be faithful to him. And, we're, and, and he is the utmost example, right? Great is thy faithfulness. Uh, just real quick, a passage from 2 Timothy. It says this is a faithful saying in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Uh, Our Heavenly Father and his Son are faithful. They're the perfect example of faithfulness that we need to look to. Um, We may... You know, some people say, well, I don't believe in this, or I don't believe in that anymore. We may become unfaithful, but that doesn't ever change. Whether somebody believes in God or not does not change that there is a God and that he is a faithful God. And he is going to reward those who remain faithful to him. Okay, so faithfulness is very important, but we also know that our faithfulness to our spouse, our faithfulness to our God is going to be tested. Okay, that happens. In marriages, uh, the faithfulness, your devotion to your spouse is going to, at some time, be tested. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. We get baptized, we we make that commitment, we want to remain faithful to him, and it's going to be tested. And what we want to look at tonight is, what is the difference between those who um, become unfaithful And those who remain faithful? Is there some sort of pattern that comes out of Genesis, some sort of lessons or guidance for us? And I think there is, and and hopefully this will come across in the class tonight. So that's by way of introduction. So let me see if I can, okay. So here's the pattern we're going to see, and it's this echo that goes throughout scripture. We're going to see, and it's the same with us, that That we can be going through life and all of a sudden we may be put into an elevated position. Others may put us in that position or we may be uh, that may come upon ourselves where we maybe have a bit more pride or, you know, maybe we get a job promotion or maybe we come and do a little bit more money or a little bit more power. Whatever it is, we get into this elevated position and that can bring along pride with it. So we're going to see this, this pattern. But there's this one thing, we'll call it one thing, often it's many things, but there's something withheld from us. It's, it's always been withheld from us. But all of a sudden, because we're in this elevated position, we sort of have this sense of entitlement. You know, why can't I have that? You know, I'm in charge of the department now, or um you know, I have a little bit more wealth. How come I can't have that anymore? And so this one thing starts to get into our mind and we become fixated with that thing that was once, you know, not a temptation, but now it is. And that one thing often stands in the way of the pride of life. Maybe it's pleasures. Um Maybe it's prestige, maybe it's power, but we begin to see that one thing, and and this will become clear as we look through the examples, that one thing is standing between us and something else, and this is usually a path to ungodliness, to to being unfaithful to our Heavenly Father. We'll, We'll be shown that we know the consequences of chasing after that one thing. We know the consequences of being unfaithful to God, but for some reason we we put that away in our minds. Uh, and then comes the, the, the climax of the matter, whether we grasp for that one thing or whether we have the strategies and the ability to turn away from that one thing, whatever it is. And finally, the consequences of whether we stay faithful or become unfaithful are often life and death. So let's look at our first example. And we read of it. And uh, let's look at Genesis. So Adam, and I'm saying Adam, but Adam and Eve together, they were put into this elevated position, weren't they? So let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over So Adam and Eve were given this elevated position over everything around them. But there was one thing that was withheld. Just one thing, and it's in Genesis 2, we know these stories well, um, or these accounts. Uh, In verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so there's just just one thing that's withheld, and this is the, the sort of amazing thing about humans. We can have so many blessings around us, and there might be just one little thing that's withheld, and that's where our minds go, and that's what we begin to focus on, and that's the the beginning of unfaithfulness. It usually sprouts out of ingratitude, a lack of gratitude for all the blessings. And we start to focus on this one thing and we become fixated with it. And I just want, I'm going to throw this out to you. Uh, in um, Genesis chapter two, if we read verse nine, it says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what tree was in the midst of the garden? It looks like it's saying the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Now, I don't know, is that saying, it seems to me it would say, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the midst of the garden, but they seem to be separate. And I'll say, I'll tell you why that might be significant. It, they may have been in the midst of the garden. But I sort of have this picture of, of um, the tree of life was in the midst, and the other tree was off on, on, on the side somewhere. But when Eve is talking about it, in Genesis chapter three, she says, um, verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. And like I say, maybe it was in the midst, or maybe we're being told here, when we become fixated on things that are withheld from us, it becomes the center of our thoughts. It becomes the, the, in the middle of where our mind is. And so this tree may have been off on the outskirts or off on the side, but in her mind, it was in the middle of the garden because perhaps she couldn't stop thinking about it. And maybe that's why she was, she was there that day. Um, now, whether that's tr- true or not, where the trees were, we do know from experience, when there's something on our mind, when that temptation is there, it does, we do become fixated on it. And it's hard to stop thinking about it. Um, So I'll just put that out there. Now, what did this one thing, this one tree, the fruit of this one tree, what what did it stand in the way of? Let's look at Genesis 3, verse 5. It says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, Now, this is the serpent. This is the serpent speaking. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And all of a sudden, this this one thing stands in the way of them being like God. We can be like God, right? And, And this can be different for different people. What it stands in the way of more prestige, more power, more fame among people at work or your brothers and sisters Um, but for them it was like it's standing in the way of us being like god being equal with god okay so and they know the consequences because in genesis 2 verse 17 they were told or adam was told um but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So they knew the consequences. But for some reason, and and we can't can't throw stones at Adam and Eve because we know the consequences whenever we sin, right? We know um, when we're we're denying God, um, when we're sinning. And we just have this ability to sort of push that aside for a little while. Um, So we know this thing. Now, Adam and Eve, we know that they actually grasped at that one thing in Genesis three, verse six, which we had read as well. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Um, And so what were the consequences of them eating? Well, in Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19, we see it says, um, and we could read from 14 on, we'll read from 17 on. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil you shall eat of it. And all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It was life and death consequences. They disobeyed God. They were not faithful. They grasped at that one thing that was withheld from them. And from this incident in Genesis, We see this happening again and rippling out throughout scripture over and over and over. And we don't have time to go through multiple examples, but we'll go through another one just to see that this pattern does uh, get established. And it's there for our learning, isn't it? All these things are there for our learning. And we should be able to look at these patterns and say, okay, when this happens in my life, what am I going to do? Can I snap myself out of it and not become fixated on those things that are withheld from me? So let's move on to the second example. And if you will, please turn to Esther. Okay, and we'll go to Esther chapter three, and we're going to look at Haman. And once again, uh, we see this pattern uh, come up. And we'll start with this that Haman is put in this elevated position. And we'll go to Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were with him within the gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. And so here we have this man who's been elevated. There's more pride. Look at me. You know, I'm second in command. That same sort of thing, pride, just balloons people's heads sometimes. And there was one thing that was withheld. If we continue reading, let's read verses 3 through 6. Then the king's servants, who were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened, when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. And for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. Okay, so here's Haman, and there's just one person who won't bow to him. And it's that same thing. He becomes fixated on Mordecai. He can't stop thinking about Mordecai. And we'll see, he's got all these blessings in his life, all these riches and esteem, but he can't. you'll you'll see what he says about it like it's worth nothing to him because this one thing is being withheld from him um, and so if we see in verse 5 um oh sorry we'll we'll see and this is what it's standing in the way of if we go to Esther chapter 5 verses 9 through 13 it says so Haman went out he's just had been invited to Esther's banquet and so Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Listen to the blessings that this man has. Moreover, verse 12, Haman said, besides Queen Esther, invited no one but me to come with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing." So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that is a picture of, of the flesh, isn't it? And we saw it with Adam. There's that one thing that was withheld. And here's this, just this one, this one Jewish fellow. Why can't he just let it go? Okay, he doesn't want about it. He can't. And it's standing in the way of his happiness. He's made this the thing that is, that is so important to him. Um, but he he knows, he's told of the consequences. Look in um, Esther chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, because his wife and his friends give him some advice. Um, and this is after chapter 6, which is that just hilarious, hilarious account where where um, Ahasuerus says, what would Haman, what would you do for somebody you want to honor? And Haman's thinking, and this is really a good picture into what Haman really wants. Um, In verse seven, Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse, which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head. And let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And you get this picture, Haman wants to be king. He wants the king's robe, he wants to ride on the king's horse, he wants the king's best servant in front of him. He wants to be king. What did what did Adam and Eve think they were going to get to be like God? right? So they want this even more elevated situation. But as I mentioned, Esther, I mean uh, Haman's family, his wife and his friends, his wise men, they warn him uh, and look at verse 12 and 13. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent you will not prevail against him but will surely fall before him this is what they say you've already begun to fall you're, you're losing to this man. And if you keep this up, you're going to completely fall. But he's immediately called to the banquet, and off he goes. And so he, he's still grasping at that one thing. And that one thing is to have uh, Mordecai and all his people murdered. And so he grasps, and that's what we, we saw back in, or we see back in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. This is the one thing he's grasping at, destruction of the Jews. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hand of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. You just think about that. Because of one man, he's willing to pay out 10,000 talents of silver to have them destroyed. And so he grasps at that one thing. And as we know from that story in Esther chapter seven, it was life and death consequences because he couldn't let go. Um, Reading from verse eight through 10, it says, Uh, When the king returned from the palace, so Esther has revealed Haman's plot, and the king is furious and he comes back. Verse 8, when the king returned to the palace garden, to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, The gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. So once again, we see that pattern. They get this elevated position, and pride fills them. There's one thing that, that, that is they become fixated with, that's being withheld from them, and it's standing in the way of even greater accomplishments or just whatever that might be. And they know the consequences, yet they still grasp at that one thing, and they become unfaithful. So let's go to some good examples, some people who break the pattern, because as much as we can learn from those who make mistakes, We can also learn from those who do it right, who remain faithful. And so let's go back into Genesis, Genesis chapter 39. And the story of Joseph. Okay, we're really going to be sticking pretty much just with three verses in Genesis 39. And um, we know that he has been um, placed into an elevated position, as we see. Let's read verses 8 and 9. I'll start actually at verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife, so this is Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And so he's been put in this elevated position. He was sold as a slave, and now he's, he's once again second in command in this house. So much so that Potiphar doesn't even, you know, Joseph, do your job. I completely trust you. Trust him with everything. Doesn't know if he's going, coming, and just completely trust him. Now that's an elevated position. And there's an opportunity for pride to move in there and say, look at all that I've accomplished. Look at all that I've done. But Joseph is not that kind of man. Now there was one thing, he even says this one thing, Potiphar withheld one thing from me, right? We saw that. He said, um, verse nine, there is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you. Now, now maybe, and I put a question mark here, maybe another man, not Joseph, maybe another man in that position would have thought, man, I can have my master's wife. And in a way, bump myself up to being equal with my master. But not Joseph. It doesn't even cross his mind, Uh, I think. And that's one of the keys that we're going to hopefully look at is that he maintained his humility, even though he had been elevated in position. I think that's so key if we're going to remain faithful to our God, that he may elevate us in different ways in our lives. But we have to remain a servant. We have to maintain that humility before him. Okay. Now, Joseph knew the consequences. Look what he says. He says, No one is greater than this. House. Towards the end of the verse, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Like he knows the consequences. If I do this thing, it's not just awful to Potiphar, and awful to his wife, I'd be sinning against God. And so he would—he knew the consequences of that. It's a wickedness, he says. It's sin. And he would know the, the ramifications of sinning against God. And we read, he does not. Now, this is the important point. I said that this is sort of the climax. Will he grasp at that one thing, or won't he? Will he remain faithful, To Potiphar? Will he remain faithful to God or will he grasp at it? Verses uh, 10 through 12. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Listen to that. He did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. He's even avoiding her as much as he can. Um, But It happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled it and ran outside. So he he escapes. He's not going to grasp at it. She's right there. She's got him in, in her grasp, and he runs away. He will not grasp at that one thing um just a sort of a funny story we were doing these readings. we've done the readings for years and years and our, our kids were quite young our son Owen was maybe four or five years old and we were reading this and I asked them do you under it's kind of hard a four-year-old right do they understand what's going on and um and Owen said he said oh yeah um she wanted she wanted him to lie she wanted him to lie with her And he said lying is bad you should always tell the truth which i thought was it was perfect for a four-year-old you you know that that's right she wanted to do something that was wrong and we left it at that um now what about the consequences what about the consequence she lies she says that he came and came against me um And what happens to him? If we look at Genesis chapter 41, now he goes into prison and he's in prison a while and then Pharaoh's servants come down and he foretells the dream. Now, how long of a period is that? I don't know. But it says in, in chapter 41, verse one, then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Now, I read that as two years after Joseph told their dreams and told them, um, and told the baker, is it the baker? No, told the butler, remember me when you go. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and the chief butler did not remember. So, two years after that. So, we're looking at maybe three years in prison maybe longer. I think three is a very significant number. I wouldn't be surprised if it was three. And maybe other people have done the, the math and figured things out. But he's three years in, in, a, in a in a grave, you know, a metaphor of a grave. He's in prison. And then in 41 verses 37 through 45, we know he he tells Pharaoh's dreams. And look what happens to him. Verse 37. Of Genesis 41. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off and his, his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. And well, just stop there. You get the idea. He wouldn't grasp at equality with Potiphar. He wouldn't take that one thing that was withheld from him. And he suffered for a while. It was like he went into a grave for three years. And then he's elevated to something far beyond Potiphar ever could have given him. And we see just sort of this beautiful picture for us. If we deny some of the things of the flesh in this world, and we may be denying A little bit of pleasure and a little bit of prestige or power or whatever it may be, but we stay faithful to God. And what is His promise? You know, a hundredfold things we can't even imagine in the kingdom. And here Joseph denies his flesh in regards to Potiphar's wife and maybe trying to become equal with Potiphar. And he's blessed so much more richly for staying faithful to God. A beautiful picture. Okay, let's go to our last example. And of course, like I said, everything seems to funnel through Christ. So let's look at the example of Jesus. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Here we're going to jump to a a few different um, passages. Mainly, we'll be focusing at Philippians. But in Matthew chapter 3, we know that Jesus was in an elevated position. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, that is baptism. I'll start at verse 13 of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. Now, obviously, that is an elevated position. Um, In Hebrews, just really quickly, it, it says, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Let all the angels of God worship him. So obviously Jesus was in an elevated position, an opportunity for pride to step in. I mean, the son of God, and you consider the powers he had. And, you know, really, I'm I'm thankful that in the state that we're in now that I don't have any of those powers because, you know, keeping pride down as it is, is hard. Imagine if you could cure people, if you could speak in any language oh, it would it'd be too much uh, for my flesh to handle. But Christ, you know, once again, this is like a Joseph. He's different than the flesh and what the flesh calls us to. Now, one thing was withheld. Let's go to the Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. So Philippians chapter 2, one thing is withheld. We'll start at verse 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery. This is the new King James, to be equal with God. know, did not consider it, and I think the, the King James says, did not grasp, isn't that interesting? He did not grasp at that one thing, equality with God. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So there may have been that that one thing. All the way back to Adam, you can be like God. And that didn't even, once again, that's not entering Christ's mind. He came with humility, uh, a bondservant, made himself of no repute. So we see, once again, that example for us. Um, And, of course, you know, perhaps we would say that one thing stood in the way of what the flesh would call. You can be like God. You can be equal with God. And here... uh, Paul is telling us, no, Jesus didn't even consider that. And he knew the consequences. Jesus knew the consequences of being faithful to his heavenly father. And that faithfulness and the consequences, if he became unfaithful, would have had repercussions throughout the world right down to us. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. verses 14 through 18 it says and if christ is not risen so you know imagine christ wasn't faithful what would have happened and we know that he was it says and if christ is not risen then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. Okay? Because Christ was faithful, when he died, and because God is faithful, he was raised from that. And that makes all the difference. That's what Paul is saying. We have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So I'm just sort of taking that a step further. You know, the resurrection is, is essential, and his life of perfection was essential how much more in trouble would we have been if he wasn't faithful to God? It would have all been pointless. And so Christ knew the consequences of living that perfect life and being faithful to his heavenly father, because he was faithful. We all have a hope. Um, And so it's a, a, a beautiful picture of the importance of faithfulness. And we know of course, that he did not grasp at that one thing as we read in Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. And very interesting similar to similar to Joseph three days in a grave and so there was still that that consequence of being faithful and that's I think a lesson for us that being faithful to God doesn't always bring the blessings now right it didn't bring the blessings to Joseph he was thrown in prison you know, didn't bring the immediate blessings to Christ. Three days in the grave. He was faithful, even to the cross. If We turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And so we should expect nothing, nothing different. Um, we shouldn't expect our lives to go perfectly and to be wealthy and have everything that we need and want. We're bond servants. We're to follow that example. We're to sacrifice knowing that God has greater riches in store for us because of our faithfulness. So in Hebrews 10, verse 12, and I'll start at uh, verse 11. And every priest stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, very similar, Joseph was elevated to the second position in Egypt. And here we see Christ, because he was willing not, not to grasp for equality with God then, not of his own will, but through faithfulness, God said, now is the time. And he's sitting at the right hand of God. Beautiful picture that God does care about us and He does care about our faithfulness. So what I want to look at, I don't know how much time I have left. Just a couple minutes. What, what was the difference? Oops. We're gonna go, we're gonna go to this one. What was the difference? How did Jesus and Joseph remained faithful while others didn't. And you could look at many other examples that follow that same pattern, that do grasp at things now and and are not faithful. And I think there's, I've looked at, we're going to look at four things real quickly that should help us in our desire, in our, our striving to remain faithful to our Heavenly Father. And the first one we mentioned with Joseph, in in Christ, is that they maintained their humility despite situations where they were elevated. So if we go to Romans chapter 11, just some supporting verses for each of these. Romans 11, verses 19 through 22. And this is an important message to us. And it's looking at the example of Israel. It says, but you will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, don't let pride come in, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness if you continue in his goodness otherwise you also will be cut off and so we may end up in situations where we're elevated where we have whatever it may be but to remain and keep that mind of a servant and to maintain our humility is going to help us to remain faithful and as it says um, you know consider the goodness and the severity of God but you know We can't get fixated on those things, one thing, as I've meant to put it, that's being withheld from us. Look at the blessings that are around us, the blessings of a brotherhood, the blessings of his word, the blessings of a hope, the blessings of meaning to our lives. And I think the second thing was that both Christ and Joseph had a strategy to avoid that one thing and becoming fixated on that one thing. We read with Joseph, he, he tried not to be around her. Um, he refused her, her advances, and he ran from her. Okay, so that was his strategy, just avoid as much as possible. He didn't put himself in situations where he'd be confronted with it as best he could. Look at Jesus's strategy. To avoiding, uh, you know, being disobedient to God or being unfaithful to God. In Matthew chapter 26, I think this is a very important one for us. Verse 38. Um, Here it says, um, I'm going to start at verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. You know, what was his strategy? Companionship and prayer. And so I think we need to learn to rely on our brothers and sisters and call out to them and ask them for help. Ask them for help. If we find that our mind is becoming fixated on that one thing, we can avoid it. Okay, but to have a strategy. Um, I think this is an important one as well, is just to label the temptation. What did Joseph call it in Genesis 39 verse 9? He said, how can I do this? This wickedness and sin against God. You know, if our human mind has a way of of taking temptations and putting, you know, this little twist on it so it doesn't seem so bad. And maybe we say we deserve it or we're entitled to it or I've worked hard or whatever it may be. And we take things that are, are evil and we dress them up. And what we need to do is, is and we call it, call a spade a spade, call the temptation what it is. Joseph said, "This is sin and wickedness." There's a psalm. Get psalm. Um, um, let's see if I can find it. Psalm seventy-two. Uh, Psalm 73, and the psalmist, Asaph, um, he calls, he's having this difficulty, and he says, you know, I almost slipped, but he calls the sin what it was. He says, I was envious. I was envious of the boastful. And I think that's what we have to do. If we get into this thing where we're fixated, if it's lust, call it lust. If it's envy, if it's jealousy, don't try to paint it up like it's something that it's not. Label the temptation as it is. And finally, and I think this was so important with both Joseph and Jesus, they developed a loving relationship. And they developed a loving relationship with their Heavenly Father. And I would say the only way you can do that is through spending time with their Heavenly Father. And you have to do that through prayer. You have to do that through reading. And then... When we do that and we develop that relationship, we don't want to turn away from him. We want to stay faithful. There's a book by a a brother, Robert Prinz, and he gives strategies to resisting temptation. And one of them, he says, if you're facing a temptation, that one thing, uh, you say to yourself, I love my heavenly father more than whatever the temptation is. I love my heavenly father more Uh, And I think that's a really good thing because, you know, sometimes the way our minds work, we don't even like to go there. But if we can remember to do that, what do I love more? Do I love this lust or this envy of something or this jealousy or anger? Or do I love my God more? You know, I think for all of us, the answer would be, I love my God more. And that should help us put things in perspective. But John 14, verses 29 to 31 and now i have told you um, and this is jesus speaking i've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass you may believe i will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me i like that he has nothing in me but that the world may know that i love the father and as the father gave me commandment so do i The world may know that I love the Father. What did he demonstrate by going to the cross? He demonstrated his love, his his faithfulness to his heavenly Father. And so we have to develop that loving relationship too. And just to wrap up, why do do we want to remain faithful? Let's look at Matthew chapter 25. At the end of the parable of the talents, and we say these words often. You know, think about it. We may go through tough times now. We may go through struggles. Joseph was thrown in, in prison. And think about standing before Christ, hopefully very soon in the future. In verse 23 of Matthew 25, imagine these words being said to us. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. And I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Thank you.